Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode on ulnar collateral ligament repair, and we've invited two, get, two guests who are world-renowned experts. First, we have Dr. Jeff Dugas, who is at the American Sports Medicine Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Dugas has served to reinvent the ulnar collateral ligament repair and has drastically altered our treatment of these injuries. Dr. Dugas, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for having me. Uh, in addition, we have Dr. Keith Meister, who's at TMI in Dallas and serves as the head team physician for the Dallas Rangers. He has a high volume practice of ulnar collateral ligament surgery um, and is also a nationally recognized expert in this area. Dr. Meister, welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Jeff, you know, I've heard you talk several times about the history of ulnar collateral repair. Tell us, where did this start? Where did it go wrong? And, and how did you bring it back? Well, um, it started in, in a long time ago with, with Frank Job and, and Jim Andrews. They, they, they did repairs back in the day. And, and Dr. Job, you know, he, he did Tommy John's surgery in 1974. But when, when John Conway published his series of 70 patients that was published in 1992 in JBJS, there were 14 repairs in the group of 70, and they didn't do very well relative to the reconstructions, this new operation. And rightfully, Dr. Job said, you know, 75% success rate in major league players versus less than 30%. Repair is a bad idea, and Andrews had the exact same numbers when he published with Fred Azar, and I think it was in 2000, basically the same. You know, he did about 90 patients. So, you know, the two giants of, I would say two of the three giants, if you throw Lou Yoakum in there, that that really pioneered, you know, this stuff, Dave Alchek and, and others, then, you know, repair didn't have a very good history. And, and you have to remember that back then we didn't have super sutures and collagen dipped this and that and we didn't have great suture anchors and we didn't and when tommy john had his surgery suture anchors hadn't been invented yet and we certainly didn't know a lot about the recovery and the procedure and the therapy and and so it was it was panned by the giants rightfully as a bad idea and as time went on you know it just didn't ever come back we had a good we had a good answer for a very long time now, Keith, I, I know you've lived through this. Tell us, tell us when when did you start doing repairs again? What changed your mind thinking maybe this was an option? Um, you know, I I, I I think what really pushed me, I you know, heard about it and and heard it discussed, and then at our major league baseball team physicians meeting uh, some years back, um, a case was presented and. Um, <clears throat> there were some pretty good pictures and and it was presented from people that I trust in the industry and 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 Jeff had already you know uh, been been working on this and so I thought at that point there was enough reasonable evidence to go ahead and and progress you know um one of my mentors Bob Leach years ago you know, had always said be not the first to take on the new but the last to discard the old and I think it was it was one of those situations. I, I think I saw that this was a reasonable opportunity 
to treat a, a certain subset of patients that that are sometimes really challenging. Um, and and you know, to Jeff's very much to Jeff's credit, I mean, this is taken off in in a lot of different directions. So let's. I know this is taking off and kind of taking over on the collateral ligament surgery. Let's talk about the indications, Jeff. Who who do you think is the most appropriate for? <laughs> We know from the very beginning, we kind of thought that this would be great for some of the end avulsions and minimal, you know, partial tears. And, and what really spurred my interest in, in, in going in this direction was something that Dr. Andrews said to me. We, you know, we used to scrub on all of his cases, Lyle Kane and I did. And for 10 years, we scrubbed, you know, all of his cases with him. There was, we were looking at some of these ligaments you cut into, and when you do a lot of these things, you know from seeing these things, you cut into them, and it's hard to imagine why we have to fix these things because some of them just don't look that bad. And some of them look terrible, and you understand why they can't pitch. And some of them you look at it, and it's, it's just not that bad, or they have a little partial undersurface thing or whatever. And as the ages have gotten younger, you know, it just seemed unfortunate that we had to do this big operation with a long recovery. So... Dr. Andrews looked at me one day and said, you got to figure this out. You know, you, you got to come up with a solution to that problem. And, you know, along the same time, the idea of the internal brace was, was coming out with the ankle, foot and ankle stuff with uh, Gordon Mackay, who's a Scottish foot and ankle surgeon. He was, he was doing it in, in ankle ligament surgery. And I just had the idea that we could do this. And originally we thought this is going to be great for, you know, high school kids don't throw very hard, you know, they have end avulsions, you know, distal and proximal or some minimal, you know, intrasubstance stuff that doesn't get better. That's who we'll do it for. And and that's really the way it started. And there was never a thought that this is going to be good for everybody, or this is going to be that it's going to cross boundaries into pro sports. That was never the point. Um, the point was, there's certainly a better option for some of these. And and what we've found over time is that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter how hard you throw or what level you play at. It's but that's a byproduct. It was never it was never intended to be this is better than reconstruction or this is going to replace reconstruction or anything like that. And it still isn't. It, that's still not the point. The point is we we thought we had to come up with something for some of these people that they don't have to go through this long recovery for a smaller injury. What are your thoughts, Keith? Who, who are you doing the, re the repair in and who are you not doing the repair in? Um, it, it, it's a good question because I don't think that any of us have absolute indications yet. I mean, there, I think there's still, we're still a little bit in, um, in an adaptive phase, I I don't know. I would say obviously Jeff's you know the lower level throwers um, that don't look like they have much tissue damage but clearly have medial elbow ligament pain. I think that it's an excellent solution for um, the discrete tears. Um, distal even maybe more so than proximal. Um, I think you can always feel maybe a little more secure about what you're repairing and, and, and how they come back. Um, but in terms of the level of thrower, I mean, I've got now probably 24 pro elbows 
and I've been very careful in, in selecting those out. And by no means am I saying this today to espouse that your elite level throwers should have an internal brace repair. I think that, that we still have to be very, very careful. Um, and and I'm, I'm sure Jeff would echo that, but I, but I have tried to, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I echo that. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I think I'm I'm just pushing forward, but slowly. Um, I think that the interesting thing is, and you maybe, you know, certainly have some questions lined up with respect to this. One of the things that, that's just been very, very interesting to me is that there's clearly a biomechanical effect of putting in these braces. But what I think I've observed and confidently is that there's also a biologic effect um, because when we start to look at these post-operative elbows with braces in, many of them, you can't even see the brace in any longer on the MRI scans or, or they're very difficult to make out on standard views. And the other thing is there's a lot of hypertrophy that goes on around the, the brace itself. So um there's a healing response that seems to occur as well and i i'd be interested to hear jeff's thoughts on that it's not something he and i specifically have discussed but i i think that may actually add to the uh, kind of the, the advantage of the procedure so to speak or or a, or a, a downstream positive that that would allow us to expand our indications yeah, I think that I've seen that as well, uh, both by imaging, ultrasound, and um, on two cases that I had to go back in on, one for, for heterotopic bone removal and one that I just removed a substicular stitch, but I wasn't sure that that was the cause of the kid's pain, so I exposed the the repair. And it was impressive, the volume of organized collagenous tissue that encased the, the 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 suture tape, you know, the fiber tape. And um, I couldn't really identify the fiber tape in there. I could tell that it was in there, but it was encased in this very organized collagenous tissue. And one of the things that I think we'll all be able to say, you know, 10 years from now is, does that have, a, does it have a ramp up where it, where it kind of hypertrophies for a period of time? And then it, becomes less hypertrophied or does it stay that way? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I don't think we know that, but what I don't think any of us have seen is a lot of people tearing through the tape and the underlying ligament repair. I've only seen that twice in, you know, hundreds of these things. So I don't think that the failure mode for this is necessarily the same failure mode that we might see with with reconstruction uh, and again i'm very cautious to say it's not better it's just a little different <clears throat> excuse me and on the two that i did see tear interestingly they tore on the opposite end from where they were repaired originally which seems to be a fairly common theme in other people that have seen you know a tear or two so you know, I, I I think Keith's exactly right. The biology of this, and maybe it's the collagen dipping, maybe it's the mechanical thing, maybe the tape is purely a scaffold. Um, I, I don't think I think these are all questions that we don't have the answers to. And I want to say very very loudly, one of the most rewarding parts of this 
for me over the last 10 years has been to see people like Keith and you and Buddy and John Conway and Jim Bradley and Chris <clears throat> Mott and, and amazing George Paletta and these incredible elbow surgeons that do, you know, high volume surgery with these things find that it, it works for some of their patients in some ways. That's aside from the patients I've been able to treat myself, that's been by far the most rewarding part of it. And, and I love the dialogue that we all have about these things. It's been, that's been extremely rewarding because we're all, we're all pretty close and we all talk about these things. We all get along well and, and interact well. So. Well, I certainly think that it's a great contribution in that way. And certainly I think we're all trying to figure out how it works and how to make it work better and how to take what we learn from it elsewhere in the body. I wanted to follow up on something you just said, Keith, you said earlier that you think that the kind of the partial thickness distal tear is maybe the best indication and that you're not sure as much about proximal tears. Jeff, what do you, do you think that this is more indicated for a distal tear than a proximal tear? It makes a difference or no? I think proximal and distal tears are different just in their nature. I, I think the distal ones deglove. I think there's also two kinds of distal tears. There's the distal tears that tear right at the joint line that I think if you looked at, if we were able to look at a large series of these things, may not do as well as the ones that tear off a sleeve from the sublime tubercle distal to the joint line. I think the ones that tear off in a sleeve distal to the joint line, you could probably just throw a suture anchor in there and be fine, which is what Buddy Savoy did and, and published on it. The ones that kind of guillotine right at the joint line, maybe those are good. Maybe there's enough <clears throat> healing response there. Maybe that's where the tape really plays a role. I think they still do well so far, but I think that's a very different environment than proximal. Um, the blood supply is better proximally. I, I don't. I think the lig the ligament is anatomically different proximally. It's it's more fanned out. It's it's a much more um, it's thicker up there. I mean, there's just differences in the tissue there. So I think the proximal tears are rarely complete avulsions like you see distally. Um, they're they're different. So. I, I think I agree with Keith that the, the distal ones are kind of chip shots. You can see them. They're easy to expose. The proximal ones are a little bit more, um, they're a little bit more hidden. They're, there's a, the tissue is just different. And I, I think that clinically in our, in our study we published, it didn't make a difference. But I do think that as we get more experience and more and more people publish on it, I think there will start, you will start to see a little difference. What are your thoughts on that, Keith? Does that match your experience or your thoughts based on the anatomy and the pathology? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with Jeff. There, there clearly are two different types that we see distally, and, and they've done equally well with a brace in my hands, but I think that um, when you open and expose and you see these things torn at the joint line, it does tend to make you a little more nervous, but I can tell you, as Jeff has said from experience, that they heal just fine. And again, it yep. may well be a the healing potential of the ligament down there and be the contribution of the brace and, and the biologic effect that it may have. Um, yeah. Proximally, maybe my feeling is, is a little biased, um, but um, look, we, we, we don't fail often, proximal or distal. I think that proximally, though, I, 
because I do get a little more nervous, I actually, you know, I've got, I've got a little different technique than Jeff uses and, and I, I, I can't tell you it's better. I just, maybe I sleep better at night doing it, but what I do with the proximal tears, because proximally, uh, from, from a technical standpoint, proximally, I never put a screw in. I actually dock it and I tie my sutures uh, up on top of the medial epicondyle or proximal to the medial epicondyle actually. And so what this allows me to do is I usually take a 1.3 millimeter suture tape and I put it in, I usually do a couple throws proximally with a Benel type stitch. And so in addition to the internal brace, I have this Benel stitch of, of suture tape that's reinforcing as well. And and they the elbows seem to be a little more solid um, when they come back. Sometimes they're a little slower to get their elbow flexion back, which I'm never worried about because they get it back. Um, but the, you know, just the, the, the feel that you, that you have of these elbows when you're doing a, a valgus maneuver on them, it, they are definitely more rigid. And I think that sometimes even the athlete feels it, but over time it tends to soften up and, you know, they, they start to feel that whippiness again. Uh, so maybe it's a little more belt and suspender that I throw in proximally. And, and again, I, maybe I'm overdoing it, uh, but I, I at least I sleep better at night <laughs> and I, I don't know that it's a better operation but it, it definitely does create a, a little bit different biomechanical environment you know to me that's been one of the like I said the great things about this is how people have taken it and done things like what Keith just described I think it's a great idea um, you know different people have done different things George Paletta is doing kind of a hybrid at times I know John Conway does some different things. Neil's doing something different. And and, and so the people have taken this and, and adjusted it or made it a little bit different. I think that's great. And I think that's how we, as a collective group of people that do this, make each other better. I, I think it's fantastic. I, I don't, I, I think it's a great thing, not a bad thing. Now, one of the things that um, I think, Keith, you've really led, at least maybe not let the charge, but you've described it recently. You gave this talk at the baseball sports medicine meeting um, last fall about kind of the techniques for combined repair reconstruction that was just awesome. Tell us a little bit, when do you, when do you combine, you know, this new repair with the, the, the more solid or traditional reconstruction? Who are the, who are the patients that get both? Yeah. I, you know, about, Five years ago, I, I kind of developed this hybrid technique where I put a tendon graft in, in a brace. And, the, and this proximal docking, the ability to dock proximally gives you that kind of latitude. So what happens is the first thing we always have to say is do no harm to our patients. And, and we have to look and say, look, in general, UCL reconstructions are going to give you close to 90% success rate, even at the elite level. Uh, upper 80%. So, you know, we have to, anything we do has to be compared to that. And, and, but even within that, that larger end, there are smaller ends, smaller silos of patients that create higher risk factors. And I think for me, those three are, are clearly number one revision reconstructions, second time TJs, where, where our current success rates with older techniques are in the 55 to 60% range. Uh, the second thing is uh, those individuals that have significant soft tissue compromise. When you get in there and, and the, either the ligament tissue is just tissue paper or you have a significant degree of ossification that requires excision and now you're left with a big hole 
basically on the medial side of the elbow. And then the last thing, which hasn't really come out as forcefully yet, but I think is going to, is the high velocity stuff. These guys that are high velo, I think, and, and Jeff can, again, can speak to this as well, but the really high velocity guys have a higher incidence of retear in shorter periods of time. And, and this, whole, this whole love affair with Rapsodo and Velo guns is destroying a lot of these, these guys, um, even at the upper levels. But that's, those are challenges that we have to deal with. So those are my three groups. And so I started putting in internal braces with uh, tenon grafts, and I have about 90 of them now. Close to 70 of them are elite level, meaning professional pitchers. And so I, I didn't just put these in, you know, lower level high school kids. I put them in the, the cases that I really felt were ultimately very challenging. And the and the results, and I've got about two dozen revisions now, and almost all of them are pro elbows. And and the results have been thus far, knock on wood, um, have been very, very good. And And this is what led me to believe that maybe in addition to the biomechanical uh, effect that we get from the internal brace, and I don't think it's it's stress shielding as much as it is stress sharing, uh, there's also a biologic effect. I think I'm really wondering now if that brace sitting in that bony tunnel with the tenon graft is helping to some extent the incorporation of the proximal uh, tendon because that's where 95% of them re-tear. We all struggle with that that same problem. These grafts break down proximally. I mean, we we occasionally see it distally, but but that's not you know that's not probably 95% of them. And and maybe just maybe this is going to help us defeat that problem. But uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. As you said, I've got a pretty sizable number, and routinely, routinely, that's what I do for my revisions if it's not a repairable um, uh, recurrent tear. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I agree with Keith completely. I, I, the revisions, I, I think that's one of the worst operations that, that we do in sports mm -hmm. medicine in terms of outcome. I mean, nobody likes, they're, they're not fun cases to do, but the outcomes are terrible. And um, I've done all of my revisions over the last five years or so with just, and if they're off one end or the other, with just an internal brace. And so far, knock on wood, as Keith said, the results have been tremendously better and all the way to the, to the major league level. And, um, you know, that has been, that has really changed my way of looking at things. I, I now revise a failed Tommy John surgery with an internal brace. If it's an end avulsion, which they usually are. And I revise a failed internal brace with a Tommy John procedure, which is the easiest revision ever because there's no bone damage. So you basically drill it as though it's a virgin, you know, bone tunnel. And, and so um, I think that that's been a side benefit. I remember when we were first getting into this, that, that Neil looked at me and said, you know, this may be really good for revisions because he had just done one and it was miserable. So uh, I did the case that Keith described today, actually. I did one of those ones where I had to take out a giant chunk of bone and a 15-year-old kid that he'd had a previous, you know, avulsion fracture at 11 and he had a, about a centimeter and a half piece of bone in his ligament. So I had to do a, you know, pretty good sized graft and, and I put the internal brace along with it. I think that's a huge tissue deficiency. And even just asking a tendon graft to take that stress is probably a lot. So I, again, that's something I learned from Keith. Now, 
How are you rehabbing those combined repair reconstructions? Are you rehabbing them as repairs or as reconstructions? As of now, for the most part, they're, you know, they're reconstructions. Um, the next step, and I've started to do it a little bit, is inching forward to see if maybe, just maybe, we can speed up their rehab. And I, I don't think because we put a tendon graft in there, I don't know that I'd feel comfortable rehabbing it you know, nearly as quickly as we do these internal braces, but there may be some middle ground there that's safe. Um, but again, if, if they're elite level throwers, then, then I don't, I won't play that game. You know, I, I think that um, I'm, I'm a little too fearful. Let's just get them healed. And if it takes them a few extra months, uh, you know, all the better. I agree. I agree completely. And, um, you know, I get asked, I'm sure Keith gets asked, and you get asked this all the time, why is the rehab from the internal brace half? And the way I answer that question is, you know, when you put a tendon graft in and you're asking it to become ligament, it has to actually undergo a physical biologic change to become ligament-like. It has to reorganize. And that process takes time. Whereas if you're repairing a ligament, it's already ligament. It doesn't have to do that. It just has to stick down and, and regain the supporting strength around it. So to me, that's the common sense answer without delving into biopsies and things like that. But um, I agree with Keith. I would still have a hard time sending back any kind of reconstruction too much quicker. You know, shave a month, maybe. Shave six months, I don't know about that. And Peter, talk, I actually get, I, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, Please. I got a, a kind of question, you know, for Jeff and yourself as well. I mean, the one thing I have noticed with the internal brace repairs, particularly with the proximal injuries, is that they, they as much as we'd like to push them quickly, they don't always bite. And they oftentimes, at least in my hands, are, are, are going to take 9, 10, 11, even 12 months, even a year until that tissue um, achieves enough maturity so that the higher level throwers, and you may be fine with the lower level high school and even the, the less than elite level collegiates, but the higher level throwers, I think it's important at least that I've noticed anyway, and maybe for people to hear that it, they don't come back at, at six, seven, eight months. I mean, some of these take longer and you have to be patient. It doesn't mean your operation hasn't worked. I mean, just would be interested to hear, you know, Jeff, for sure, your comments on that. Yeah, I agree. And um, I actually changed a little bit about that um, probably about 18 months ago. I wasn't using a burr for either side to create a, you know, fresh bone surface. I was just kind of freshening it up with a rasp or a rongeur or something just to create a bleeding surface. And the last 12 to 18 months, I've gone to taking a little micro burr on when I do the proximal ones and making sure that I get a really just a healing area for what I'm putting in there. And um, so do I think that that's made a difference? I do. Can I prove it yet? No. But I think that that has become... A I think I think the healing response has been better. That may just be an area that if you're just drilling a hole, you may not be getting quite what you're what you think you're getting. And and maybe maybe some of that tearing that we see up there is more broad than just a three five hole. 
So I thought maybe I ought to create a little bit bigger surface area underneath that ligament. I want to be underneath it. You know, we all kind of agree we don't want to go in the ligament. We want to kind of go underneath it a little bit, just deep to it. But I, I, I've just been trying to stir up a little bit more healing there than I was before. And just anecdotally, maybe that's making a difference. But I agree with Keith that they do, they were taking a little longer and maybe some of them still are, but maybe I'm seeing a little trend towards it being a little more like the distal ones since I started doing that. I, Keith, I completely agree with you. And the other thing that I think, and I, I'm sure you've both seen this player, I've seen the player that gets it in their mind that they have to get back at six months, and then at five months injures their shoulder because they're pushing so hard. So oh, I yeah. definitely have pushed all of my players to say six months is not a target, six months is not a goal, six months is not an expectation, six months is something that can happen but doesn't need to happen, um, especially if they're trying to just push back for the fall. You know, this time of year, I, I will say, you know, let's plan for nine instead of six. Um, I'll be curious to hear what your thoughts are. It's interesting what you said, Jeff, about the bone. But I wanted to ask you in a similar vein about the flexor pronator. So we've all seen that player that has, you know, partial tear, but the flexor pronator is lit up too. Does that change how you think about the repair? Does it change your willingness to do the repair? Do you think that's a, a negative prognostic factor? Or it's neither here nor there. You know, I've, what I've gone to with that is trying to really identify if I think the ligament is the source of the pain. And I've gotten our ultrasound guys really good at giving me information on that. And as much as I think I can't even turn, I, I can't even turn the ultrasound machine on, let alone read it. When they, when they show me an ultrasound, I, it's like a foreign language to me, but as I've looked at them with these guys, I've really been impressed with their ability to look at it both dynamically and, and look at the quality of the tissue. And I've felt like at least half of the time they can tell me that it opens too much, there's too much play dynamically, or the ligament doesn't look that bad, but the flexor pronator looks terrible. And so I, I, I love MRIs. I think it's a great test. It's a very sensitive test. And maybe the, the just below that sensitivity level of ultrasound is not a bad thing, especially when you're looking at it dynamically. So when I'm in that boat where I've got kind of a partially torn proximal ligament that doesn't look terrible and the flexor pronator doesn't look that great, in addition to my history and physical exam, I'm also trying to get a dynamic ultrasound. And I think that that has made me better at guiding people as to, is this a surgical problem or is this a PRP injection and some rest? And it's really your flexor pronator that's, that's causing your issue. And the ligaments probably been like that for years. So um, I can't say that I'm great at it yet, but I do think that that has made me at least better than I was which may not have been a high bar. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Keith? Is, do you use dynamic ultrasound in that setting? What other thoughts do you have about the flexor pronator? No, I, I actually, I think most of the flexor pronator stuff is, is actually what I'd term periligamentous edema. Um, I think it gets overread as a primary flexor problem. And the primary problem is the 
is the ligament. And you get some, you get proximal uh, sprain of the ligament, you get some bleeding into the surrounding soft tissues. And, and that's where most of the issue is. I, I don't think the primary problem in, in, in the huge majority of these is muscle. The primary problem is ligament. And so the, the, I, I guess the challenge is to determine, as you guys have discussed already, is, is what the significance or how bad the ligament injury is. Um, and instead of dynamic ultrasound, I'm a huge fan of, of Pam Lund, who's uh, uh, just an incredibly bright MSK radiologist out in uh, Arizona who's come up with the fever view for MRIs. And I've been doing fever views on all my MRI scans, which is a, a flexion, external rotation, uh, valgus uh, view of the elbow uh, in the MRI scanner. So essentially it's a dynamic uh, position that we scan in. And it's been extremely helpful for me as, as kind of a, um, uh, um, an adjunct in, in looking at these because it is a dynamic view. And I, as with Jeff, I am just, I'm not really good at looking at ultrasound, but we get these flexed elbow views and essentially the elbow's in a 90 degree position, shoulders in a 90 degree position in the MRI tube. And it's a uh, just a water bag, eight pound water bag put on the elbow with a special pillow, and and we get these uh, dynamic views of the medial joint space, and they're extremely helpful, and I found them to be spot on clinically in terms of what you see ultimately when you get in there in the joint. I just had a um, a, a pretty significant pitcher who who had some degenerative changes throughout the ligament, but had more posterior elbow pain than medial elbow pain, and and on his uh, fever view, he opened up over five millimeters. And so it, it was kind of a, uh, you know, an easy decision in terms of, you know, surgical management at that point. So, uh, again, I, I can't say enough about those views. And, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that more and more people begin to do those views and do them well. Well, I want to be respectful of both of your guys' times. You've been really generous to come on with me tonight. I know you both have lots to do. This was awesome. You guys are awesome and giving us the latest and greatest in the ulnar collateral ligament repair. And I think that our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing all of your insights. Um, but this is about all the time we have for our podcast. Thanks to both of you. Uh, for all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and we will see you next time.